Welcome to Liberty Under Law, the podcast of the Robert H. Jackson Center, a nonprofit organization that exists to advance public awareness and appreciation of the principles of justice and the rule of law as embodied in the achievements and legacy of Robert H. Jackson, U.S. Supreme Court Justice and Chief U.S. Prosecutor at Nuremberg. This podcast explores and examines contemporary and historic issues of equality, fairness, and justice with a Jacksonian lens through in-depth conversations with experts, innovators, and those doing the boots on the ground work. I am your host, Kristen McMahon, president of the Robert H. Jackson Center. Hello, and welcome to Tea Time with the Jackson Center. My name is Kristen McMahon, and I have the pleasure of serving as the president of the Robert H. Jackson Center in Jamestown, New York. We envision a world where the universal principles of equality, fairness, and justice prevail. We are taking a bit of a break in August from live programming. And so for our second monthly tea today, we are rebroadcasting one of our 2020 Tea Time programs and then speaking with someone to provide a brief update. So today we are re-airing our August 2020 conversation with Professor John Hansen, who is the Alan A. Stone Professor of Law and the Faculty Director of the Systemic Justice Project, which is a policy innovation collaboration organized and catalyzed by Harvard Law School students and devoted to identifying injustice, designing solutions, promoting awareness, and advocating reforms to policymakers, opinion leaders, and the public. Then following the conversation with Professor Hansen, you'll hear from Enumale Agata about a pilot project between the Systemic Justice Project at Harvard Law School and the Thurgood Marshall Civil Rights Center at Howard University's School of Law called the Justice Initiative. As always, we welcome your comments and questions in the chat. I will address what I can, and I will bank the rest to chat with John and Enumale about. Thank you so very much for joining us for tea today. We hope you enjoy this refresher conversation with Professor Hansen and the update with Enumale. Good afternoon, and welcome to Tea Time with the Jackson Center. I am Kristen McMahon, the president of the Robert H. Jackson Center in Jamestown, New York. Today's tea is sponsored by the James. Jamestown Bar Association. Justice Jackson was a distinguished member of the JBA, which continues to protect and promote the professional interests of its members, foster pride in the profession, and encourage civility and collegiality in the practice of law. Our guest for tea today is Professor John Hansen, the Alan A. Stone Professor of Law and the Faculty Director of the Systemic Justice Project, the Director of the Project on Law and Mind Sciences at Harvard Law School. John, thank you for joining us for tea today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And I hope you don't mind that I'm drinking iced coffee. <laughs> I do not mind. The tea is more of the time of day as opposed to the actual beverage. So, yes, what I was guessing. welcome to drink whatever you like. <laughs> so, you know, I feel as if there is a level setting place that we should start, but it's also probably the hardest question I ask you. And that is how do we define justice? Yeah, um, that is the hardest question. And we could spend our entire time on that and uh, still just be getting warmed up. Um, so I will tell you that uh, 
I've spent the last six or seven years struggling with that question, how to define justice. Uh, I've done a lot of it with um, a collaborator of mine named Jacob Lipton, who co-directs the Systemic Justice Project with me, and we teach courses on systemic justice. And so we we really have an obligation to to be able to answer that question, and um, it's it's tough. Um, and I would add that justice as a as a term is kind of notoriously undefined. Um, uh, justice Holmes wrote about um, in a letter to a friend how he hates justice because it, uh, it has so little meaning compared to just what law stands for. Um, and yet also justice we know in our system and our culture and in our legal system in particular the judiciary is a, is a, if not the most important kind of norm that we appeal to when we're talking about what we're doing. So all of this is just to say, you're right, Kristen, you've, you've asked a difficult question, and I'm obviously just stalling. Um, the, 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 my efforts to um, define it with Jacob have had a number of, of sort of stages. So one part is just to look, does anyone have a definition that around which there is meaningful consensus? Uh, can you look it up somewhere and find out what it is? Um, and the answer is no. Um, but in 2018, Merriam-Webster defined a, a name justice as their word of the year because clearly it's important. We look it up a lot and we don't find a definition when we go to Merriam-Webster's that's anything other than tautological. So, so with that, we began reading philosophers and um, journalists and historians um, and really trying to get a sense of what is it that people mean when they speak of injustice. And we think we've kind of um, made some progress on that front. Uh, but the easiest way to, to sort of appreciate that is to abandon justice as the goal in terms of what we're trying to define and to understand that there is often much more consensus around injustice what counts as injustice and what are the set of perceptions that we have when we name something an injustice. Um, and it turns out that, you know, historians will point back to moments in history and those moments will be perceived kind of universally at the, at the time by today, you know, by posterity today, we'll look, we'll look back and say that was unjust or in a given culture at a given moment, the, the, the critical mass, the majority of people will look and, and perceive something as unjust. Um, and journalists will give accounts of that. Or as philosophers study the question, they will often speak of injustice. And what we think we've identified is a set of, of, of three basic perceptions that people have when they feel injustice. And I'll stop after just naming these, uh, though there's so much more to say. Um, one is a perception of power um being exercised to produce inequality or harm or suffering a kind of harm or suffering that um, advantages those with power and, and using the power and disadvantages those who are recipients of it and that that is done without legitimacy so if you were to try to distill this into some mathematical equation, it would be something like injustice equals power plus inequality minus legitimacy. That's a, that's a working definition of injustice. And then from there, 
you can begin to understand what justice means, that an institution like the judiciary or the law that purports to advance justice is in part claiming to respond to perceived injustices. Uh, to say that if that's illegitimate use of power to, gener to generate harm or suffering, then we will step in and right that somehow. We'll, we'll provide for compensation or we'll do something to alter the relationship such that the power dynamic changes or we'll punish someone who we think had enough of a bad intent or kind of malign motive uh, in producing that injustice. There is so much to unpack there. And and I reached out to you initially to set up this conversation. I had uh, told you that I had been reading an article about someone who had called the Department of Justice to ask um, what is the definition of justice under which they're operating. And um, it took some time for the Department of Justice to get back to the author of that article, but the answer came back really that they did not have a definition of justice under which that the Department of Justice operates. And I think that might come as a surprise, but also given the complexity of what you just laid out for us, maybe not, maybe because the, the, the definition of justice is something that is situation or occasion specific. And so it's hard to have a global definition. I think that's very right. Um... So a couple of things, if you look at that strange tension between proclaiming justice at, you know, as your goal or even putting it in your name, you'll see that throughout the legal system, that courthouses place statues in, 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 in quotations on, uh, in and around their buildings, um, really celebrating this notion of what they're doing as being about justice, that um, the legal profession itself, if you if you look at the ABA website and other other main sources of sort of professional um, organization, you'll see uh, appeals to and um, claims of justice as being absolutely fundamental. In legal education, uh, a great number. Uh, I don't. I can't say a majority because I haven't looked, but uh, it feels like at least a substantial minority of law schools in their mission statements place the sort of advancement of justice as the or one of the top three things that they consider their mission. So it's always there, and yet also in all of those contexts, if you ask people, they don't have an answer. In fact, uh, there's a lot of kind of famous stories of law students going to law school. Um, and it was true when I was a law student way back uh, that if you raised questions of justice, it was almost silly. You were almost revealed as naive uh, for believing that there would be an answer to that question. You know, what does this have to do with justice uh, might be the, the comeback of the professor at the time. So there is then this kind of um, what feels like a, a tension or even an, a hypocrisy about our attitudes justice. But your point, in part because justice is us something that is, has a clear definition that then we can identify it the way we might define a bridge and then be able to point to a bridge and say that is one, um, and more of a felt sense. It's, a, it's something we experience um, and it's often, social psychologists tell us, it's often very much connected with the emotion of anger such that even in circumstances where we're anger, angry for another reason, we, we drove into work and, um, and every light 
caught us on the way and it's just one of those days and you you get in and you're just, you're angry and you're having an interaction with a colleague you're more likely say social psychologists in those circumstances to perceive those interactions to to really suggest a, some disrespect so, to be slighted to actually perceive something like injustice that's something wrong about that interaction only because you've got anger so this this feeling that comes with injustice is really remarkable. It's also what makes us say when something is unjust, oh, let's get up off the couch. Like, I will stand up to injustice. It's a, it's a special feeling that actually mobilizes and catalyzes us to do something in response and to actually put ourselves second or third oftentimes and to put a group or a victim ahead of ourselves. So it's a remarkable feeling. And then finally, to also to your point, what's activating that? Well, it's this set of criteria, each of which is subject to perception, to perspective, to context. And so in most cases, someone's argument that, you know, A is unjust and therefore we should enact policy B, someone else will say, you know, policy B is unjust and therefore we should re stick with with A, you know, it's this in almost every major policy debate you can you can encounter, you can often distill it to different claims that are in some ways based on this rough definition of justice, where perspective on the matter changes whether someone feels self-righteous about saying, change it, you know, and or whether someone else feels self-righteous about saying, keep it and don't change it. Well, and I think that that is often borne out in our laws as well, which, and perhaps this is more about unintended consequences, is that someone thinks that they have crafted um, a law that will have this intended set of results, and yet oftentimes inadvertently or unintentionally something else is impacted that had not even been part of the consideration. Um, and so it can, and that isn't even necessarily close in time. It could be many years down the road as, as the, the understanding of those laws change. And so it's also something that we need to continuously be looking at, um, which in, an, in addition to a definition that is hard to nail down, those circumstances make it even more challenging. Right. Well, the very simple example of what feels like an injustice is where we see some individual making a very conscious and deliberate intention, a, a, um, a decision to harm someone else. And that individual that's doing it isn't otherwise carrying the legitimacy that, that would make us feel okay about it. So it might be in a circumstance where, you know, someone is led off from the courtroom um, to, uh, to a prison we see that as very much a clear harm, but in some circumstances where that is legitimate, that's a legitimate use of force. Um, or where we see one competitor out competing another competitor in a market economy, we definitely see that that patent or that innovation has given this someone an advantage and it, and it helps, but that is legitimate. Or where we see someone deciding um, you know, I'm going to take you up in a plane and allow you to drop off with a, with a with a uh, parachute and the parachute doesn't work, we see consent as something that, that legitimates the inequality or the harm that's created through that relationship. So that 
Um, all of this is mediated by um, these elements of whether there's legitimacy or not. And the simple story of someone, you know, accosting someone else, uh, harming them uh, without justification is where perceived injustice emerges. And that's often where, you know, there is escalation of, of violence between individuals or groups that may be implicated in, in that situation. On the baseball field, when that happens, you know, at least when we were playing baseball um, uh, with with you know more players and so forth, the the benches would unload and you know the bullpen runs in and uh, and really if you were to distill what they're saying that you know throwing throwing that ball you know inside and high for the third time in the same at bat that was unjust. It was an unjust you know it was using your power as a pitcher to potentially inflict suffering on the part of our player without legitimacy. Um, so so, so those are the easy cases. And those easy cases in some ways preoccupy aspects of the legal system. Intentional torts are an example where we see it really easily and we're more punitive in our damages and we're, and we're more uh, demanding uh, in terms of what we require someone who engages in that kind of behavior to compensate. Um, and similarly, criminal law itself is a manifestation of uh, this is the kind of deliberate intentional action that, that creates harm that we are especially attentive to. The problem is that so many of our social problems are the consequence not of malignant actors who are intentionally trying to harm someone, but instead are built into the design of our systems, usually not consciously, in a way that is that is definitely harming some groups and helping others. And it is the, um, the way in, in some ways that the human mind works, it's the um, way in which those systems are often characterized and justified that makes people comfortable with that, that is to feel it's legitimate. And one of the places where you often get tension between groups is in that space between one group that is feeling more or less victimized by that more complex system on one hand, and another group that's saying, you know, we didn't do anything intentionally. We're, there's, there's no injustice here. This is just the way the system works. And um, the tension emerges as that really you have two different perspectives on what's happening with and what's causing the same harm. I might agree there's an inequality, but that inequality isn't a consequence of us doing anything. And typically the argument is if you're suffering from the inequality in a system, that's on you. In, in U.S. culture, uh, in, our, in our legal system, we're very individualistic in terms of assigning responsibility and blame. And that more or less means the presumption in our legal system is if you're disadvantaged or uh, suffering, then otherwise system where no one individually has deliberately hurt you, that's more or less on you. Well, if it's on you, then you're responsible for it and there is no injustice. Um, so I, I'm, I'm giving you long answers to your short questions. I just want to say I'm a victim of the topic. Uh, it is a complex topic. Well, and I think that we're in a lot of that play out now, and this gets us a little bit into the conversation of systemic justice. I'm going to put a pause in for one moment. 
because I would also uh, have a hypothesis that no one expected justice and baseball necessarily to be included in the same sentence. Um, but I wanted to backtrack a little bit to when you were You're talking about- You're obviously not a baseball justice. fan, Kristen, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I am I am a baseball fan, but uh, I, you know, I, perhaps I am more of, a, of a, um, a, day, a day kind of fan as opposed to deeply involved in it. Um, but I wanted to take a step back to when you were talking about criminal justice, because that is, I think, most often where we think of the term justice coming into play. Um, and in relationship to justice there, it's also that there is typically some sort of punishment or compensation that, uh, that is attached to that. And I just was curious with regard to the research that you've done and certainly the work within um, systemic justice projects has that has that been shown to be effective? You know, do 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 the punishments and or compensations really seem to impact justice? And part of what I hear in your question is very much justice related. And part of what I might have heard was, is it serving a deterrence function? And I just want to make sure I'm clear on what you're asking. I think I, let's keep it within the justice realm. Um, and, you know, and maybe it's, uh, let me, me recraft the sentence a little bit. So um, we had David Crane on recently, who was one of the chief, who was the chief prosecutor for the tribunal in Sierra Leone. And, and of what he discussed and described um, was a listening tour for the victims. And that for them, that was an important part of justice in their eyes. It wasn't necessarily that they needed someone to be punished, uh, but they really needed to tell their story. Um, and so I wonder how do we how do we make room for the victim's concept of justice or do we currently make room for that? Yeah, uh, that's. I think that's great, great question. Um, and I'm not gonna claim to have a lot of expertise on this and if I suggested I had expertise on these other things, I, my apologies. But um, I, I would say that I think when we think about what makes something unjust in, in terms of the felt sense of injustice, often it is that built into the relationship, power generating harm without legitimacy, really is a sense of human disrespect or disrespect across groups such that you or some or someone or some entity or some system produced an, an advantage and a disadvantage in a way that suggested that there was a fundamental inequality between the people involved, that there was something inherently different about them that might justify the result, not something that otherwise justified it. If you look back in history, one of the common ways in which we have justified what we now see in history as injustice is by doing just that, saying we, the advantaged, deserve our advantage because we are of a special quality or of a special character or have a special disposition or maybe have a special culture that, um, and that we, we deserve because of that or because of our relationship with uh, some divine power to impose that on others. And they who have um, less or are, are 
being displaced uh, in our expansion um, uh, deserve that because they are less. Um, and that set of justifications turns out is still with us. You can find it in many forms in justifying inequality today. In fact, one argument to go back to the criminal law system is that criminals became a label that we used to substitute for what had been a, la a, a different label prior to the mid 20th century, when that different label was no longer itself legitimate. We can't say you are a lesser species or that you're biologically or hereditarily inferior. That argument had lost all of its credibility and legitimacy and had viewed, been viewed as taboo by the mid 50s and 60s. Uh, so part of what we needed was a new justificatory, justificatory or legitimating, sorry, I can't handle the words that I want to say, legitimating account of why this inequality that otherwise we perceive in different groups or that we want to impose on different groups can be justified. And one argument is that criminals and criminality is the notion, the conception that was developed, not necessarily consciously, but there was some consciousness in the development of the, of the strategy, say many historians, to do just that. And that where we are now in some ways in talking about decarceration, defunding the police, abolition, Black Lives Matter is really a collection of responses to what that later 20th century kind of um, uh, effort um, and policymaking um, strategy imposed. And that we're, we're reckoning to some degree, not just with slavery and hundreds of years of say white supremacist institutions, but the last 50 years in which particular version was justified in a particular way. To the question, what about the role of voice or hearing victims? I think that that same point of like, we need something in our relationships to give us a, a felt sense of equality is quite fundamental. And that what social psychologists tell us in the question of legitimacy, under what circumstances do we perceive that a system or a process or an outcome is legitimate? The answer is often one in which the party, including the disadvantaged party, has a meaningful voice, or at least has an opportunity to tell their story. And I think that's absolutely fundamental to any system that's, that's well-functioning, that voice, that the opportunity to be heard um, and, um, and not simply um, a result is part of that process. I will, if you don't mind, I'd like to say a little bit more to say that the other thing that social psychologists tell us is that our desire for voice in creating legitimacy of systems is actually so strong that we can feel comfortable about outcomes even when the opportunity to speak to the matter could conceivably have had no impact on the outcome, but simply to have been able to tell the story or to voice uh, an objection or an account of what happened. And I both can understand that, but also think that should make us troubled because it may 
allow us to live with injustice that we would otherwise found find um, unacceptable simply because of the existence of voice. And the last thing I will say is that I think apologies in some way are really powerful for some of the same reasons. That the recognition of the party that that was arguably the perpetrator or arguably advantaged by a certain um, policy or system, acknowledging that um, and recognizing that in some ways committing not to repeat it um, is, is critically important. Many people would observe that our system doesn't, doesn't contain those elements adequately, uh, that there's not, um, that the adversarial process often plays, pits parties against each other in a way that makes them um, unwilling to hear one another and unwilling to apologize um, uh, to each other. And um, the emergence of negotiation and mediation and other forms of, um, you know, settling disputes, I think, is in part a manifestation of a desire to, to create some of those benefits that, that come from more meaningful communication between parties. We spoke with Riaz Kanji last week uh, about the McGirt decision, and we also dipped into the peacemaker or peacemaking courts that some of the Indian nations or tribes also have. Um, and Riaz mentioned that the, some of the courts in Michigan have started to adopt some of the same principles from the peacemaker courts. And they do tend to focus around um, that sense of uh, community and speaking uh, and you know, less on the punitive side and more on the, on, the, on the voice and how can the community help this person move forward now that this has happened. I think that's um, I think that's wonderful, and it's um, it's an an important addition to a system that has um, real deficiencies in that in that area. If we can move in that direction, it seems to me um, significant. I would add, however, for the reasons I've already suggested, that that can't be enough. That we we kind of have to be more attentive than we are to the. Um, lasting inequalities um, that have been with us for a long time and to actually make repair if we want there to be a perception of justice if they want or more importantly if we want there to actually be justice because what part of what part of what we can do and um, is to create a kind of false sense that we've gotten there because we've gotten something that feels like satisfaction or peace in the moment or um, or a real connection between people but often what happens is that's going to um, that's not going to really address the underlying issues and those underlying issues are ultimately going to still be with us um, and and I at least am a, of a view that the commitment of law to justice, its purported commitment to justice must mean more than simply creating the perception of justice, that there is got to be something deeper that we have to be aspiring to um, in our, in our um, yearning for this end. And there, I think it's to try to understand and, and to go back to the elements I suggested, to try to understand better what are the 
the different dynamics of power there you know there's the obvious ones where we see you know someone with a gun and um or a baseball bat to go back to my other example um but we but there but what about when the power is built into systems or it's built into roles um or the you know understanding the me too movement is in part an understanding of power dynamics that are not so obvious and visible perhaps now they're becoming more visible but 40 years ago 30 years ago 20 years ago those things were only becoming visible as real sources of power that we should be sensitive to and deciding you know why is it that this party was harmed to put to put that point in another way the legitimating role of something like consent is has to be questioned if we know that what consent often means is not something that should have that much of a normative impact that consent may be capitulation to power dynamics in a situation where you have really no meaningful or very uh, no meaningful choice or no real better choice um, and and that difficult sort of double triple bind problem is one that makes the notion of consent um, less meaningful coming to understand that is key and also to go back to the elements of of justice, our insensitivity to inequality, our in our 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 willingness to build institutions that, in some de degree, insulate us from acknowledging the extent of inequalities, particularly across groups, uh, sort of identity groups that have been with us, you know, since we've created them uh, in our history. Those inequalities are always there, but in a way we have systems that help us look away or legitimate them. And I really feel like a, a real allegiance to the end of justice requires that we be very self-examined and careful about um, scrutinizing each element of that sort of, that uh, equation that I articulated earlier. So there are two things that you just said that I want to pick up on quickly and they're actually probably two separate questions but i'm going to ask them together in case i forget um, so the first question or the first idea was that sometimes just talking about this helps us feel as if justice has been done and what that twigged for me was that is it me talking with my friends about the situation that has been experienced or um the harm that I that I either felt had been perpetrated against me or that I had perpetrated against someone else, is that from a social or psychological perspective enough for me to feel as if I might have achieved some level of justice and therefore I stop working towards what the actual systemic problem is or what the true root of the problem is? Um, and so actually, let me, I, I'm going to change my mind and pause there after that question. That's, um, that's a great question. And um, I'm, I'm really, I'm really speculating here. Um, more more than before, Kristen, and I would say um, the question regarding the helpfulness of speaking your story of sharing your story about what happened, of telling what happened, might be understood as um, within this larger context that a lot of human interaction does lack objective definition 
or a single correct story, that part of what it means to be a human being is to have a perspective and a particular set of experiences um, that shape what happens and, uh, and shape how one understands what happened. And we rely on stories and categories and schemas and ideologies and you know, cultural norms and expectations. All of those things are shaping how we perceive a particular event. And that often what, what is happening in a contest over justice is really a contest over competing stories. And that when someone in power say, exacts advantage with that power over someone else it, with legitimacy and that person perceives it as illegitimate, what's really at stake is a competing story about what whether it's legitimate or not. And that story is gonna be whether the person who, the, let's call that person the perpetrator for just sake of clarity, the, the perpetrator tells a story that that person chose it, consented to it or deserved it or whatever. And the other person tells a different story that says, I, I was a victim. I was, um, uh, it, you know, I, I didn't do anything wrong and I had no option and so forth. So those kinds of competing stories, but we also see those stories being applied across groups. We have them in our culture to, to do with racial groups, with men and women, with adults and children. We have them, many of these are quite implicit, but they are, but they are there regarding people who are overweight, uh, regarding uh, people who have eating disorders. Uh, we even have stories uh, and sort of stereotypes about age and on and on. Whatever you can kind of identify, and there's a lot of categories for identification, there are often a set of implicit stories that attach to that. The story that attaches to a harm that someone suffers or an advantage that someone else achieves is a story that is usually contestable. And an ability of a victim to be able to tell anyone their story is in some ways affirming to that person because it allows that person to begin to retell what otherwise would be perceived as the existing dominant power, powerful story. And that the, telling a friend is going to certainly be a sense of relief and a good friend is going to likely say, I totally hear you and I agree with you. Maybe a better friend would push back on some of the points and say, might want to rethink that. But that is not going to be fully satisfactory to a person who is feels they've been wrongly victimized. Um, that there's been an injustice, and that person is going to want and crave, understandably, to retell the story on the public space because we're all also public. And because that story likely connects to a whole bunch of other decisions and allocations that our system sort of produces. And um, again, where we see movements in a society, we're often seeing a competition over those stories. And and it's like Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter is a story. It's an account of inequalities that otherwise are being um, uh, legitimated inappropriately or dismissed as trivial um, or uh, otherwise uh, looked away from. So the, these, um, these stories are key. A legal system that responds by saying, you will have a choice, you have an opportunity to tell your story.
is in part responding to that felt need. In a legal system that says, ah, we're gonna allow two parties to tell their competing stories and we're gonna put a neutral party, say the jury from the public to help mediate, to decide in a public way, like one story is right, and with the authority of the law, we're going to we're going to sign up to that one. And sometimes we're going to say that person was really bad and, and needs to be needs to be jailed or that person needs to pay punitive damages. All of that is not just about damages. It's about the story and the quality of the story and the meaning of the story and so forth. And that makes sense. We talked a lot about systems regarding uh, in relation to justice and you know currently some of the the topics that we're speaking about now racial injustice or justice environmental justice social justice these are all monumental systems uh and it occurs to me that the part is what it part of what has happened with the black lives matter and me too movement is that the power structure the power dynamic has shifted a bit. And so um, because those those stories, those stories have always been there, or you know, perhaps not always, certainly for a very long time have been there. Um, but the power structure was such that either they weren't rising to the surface or they were deliberately um, dismissed. Um, and now the power structure seems to have shifted to perhaps sadly, and this may be an oversimplification of there are such a critical mass of these stories that you can no longer ignore them. Love that. I, I agree. And if you don't mind, I'll give one of my standard long answers that more or less repeats what you just said. Is that all right with you? <laughs> yes, that, that sounds perfect. And then we'll move into questions from our audience too. That's wonderful. Um, just to complicate it a bit, I would say that it's not just that the power dynamics have changed. One way to think of it is in terms of this, let's call it a triangle uh, of relationship between power, inequality or suffering and legitimacy. And that if you think of it in that, um, think of those as really interacting those three and that it's interacting over time in history, you can see that there are moments that what's primarily changing is the is the power dynamic. But there are also moments when what's fundamentally changing is the story, the legitimating story. So I mentioned earlier, the, the middle of the 20th century was a time in which the stories that had justified inequalities really lost their credibility. And in part because they lost their credibility, it changed power dynamics. To be sure, power dynamics were also changing too. So if we think about the early 20th century, also we know that inequality was becoming more salient. If you just look at wealth and income inequality in the early 20th century, it, it was at very, very high levels, uh, unlike anything else except today, um, where the stark wealth inequality was visible to all um, and, and it raised a question in a way, created a kind of dissonance between what people wanted to feel or tended to otherwise feel, our system is just, and the, and the very possibility that with these great inequalities that we can observe, 
And now we're observing them increasingly in the 20th century across wealth, but we're increasingly seeing them across ethnic groups. We're increasingly seeing them across men and women. And part of what's changing there is the, is the war dynamic as groups that were viewed as outside and other are often brought in to serve in the factories or to serve on the battlefields, they become more like us. And as they become more like us, it's harder to say they are other and therefore we can't, we can justify the inequality based on their otherness because suddenly they're becoming us. But so too are the legitimating stories with, with the depression, you could no longer say that inequality was about hard work and merit as much as it was historical accident or arguably regulatory failings or corporate power or some other set of stories that leaves the inequality um, element without easy explanation. Um, so you see the legitimating scripts changing. And then of course, as the Robert H. Jackson Center knows better than anyone um, and your audience, uh, you know, Nazi Germany and the kinds of explanations that were used to justify the Holocaust in Germany, those justifications were coming from places like England and the US and other Western countries that had developed these, these ideological stories, justifications for inequality that had to do with heredity genes, eugenics, and so forth. And those race sciences in that attempt to legitimate inequality had been thoroughly legitimated. And so we're coming out of the middle, the early 20th century with this, this quite unusual set of circumstances where the legitimacy of inequality was really questioned. The inequalities themselves were really particularly salient and also power dynamics are particularly salient. And all of those things come together to a moment in which now suddenly you look at the same question and it looks totally different. You, you know, you come to Brown v. Board and you're asking about whether separate is equal. No, and we're not really sure why, but we're going to use the word justice and we don't have a lot of good precedent on our side. But it's, you know, a brilliant decision that we all look back at with some pride that otherwise isn't being coming from the law in some obvious way. There we begin to see law as something that is has to have an allegiance to something greater. The, the Holocaust and the Nuremberg trials and so forth also taught us to some degree that lesson that, that obedience to law was not enough to justify the existing systems. We have to, we have, to have something higher that we're aiming for. So all I'm trying to, to emphasize is that there's nothing about power by itself that would change. Yes, power by itself changes the whole dynamic, but it's all three of those things that are operating. And if you're looking at history over time, you can almost watch and see inequalities of different times increasing and decreasing as you're watching these different dynamics between power, inequality, and legitimacy changing. Hello, and Molly. Thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. So I'm going to do a brief introduction for our audience. Uh, you are a 2017 graduate of Harvard's Law School and also Harvard's Kennedy School with a master's in public policy. You and I were talking a little bit about that made for a very busy time at Harvard. Yes, it did. <laughs> and you currently serve as the oversight counsel in the House of Representatives for the Committee on House Administration. I hope I got that correct. That's right. That's right. Okay. That's right. So as both you and our audience know, Professor John Hansen and I spoke last August, just about a year ago, 
on, you know, a topic you can easily cover in an hour. What is justice? <laughs> small, small, simple. Fine. It's fine. It's simple. very, you know, if, if it's one of those things we should be able to answer very easily and succinctly. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and when I was researching what uh, we could use as a follow-up to that conversation, I discovered the pilot project that has become one of your passion projects. And so I am excited to have you here to talk to us about the Justice Initiative. Yes, I'm thrilled to be here to talk about the Justice Initiative. Um, where should I start? Yeah, so I would say, why don't we start with, tell us what it is and how yeah. you came to be involved with it. Sure, so uh, the Justice Initiative is a community of law students, law professors, legal practitioners, uh, and our objective is to revolutionize legal education and in doing so, change the type of lawyers that are produced and kind of pumped into our legal system. Um, and we, the, the main way we do that is through these Saturday sessions, which this past academic year would be like every other Saturday. Uh, and it's an opportunity for everyone in our community to get together. We would usually have speakers, either professors or like organizers or people who are actually working on the field, movement lawyers uh, come and talk to us about different topics. Sometimes it would be how to be a movement lawyer, how to take care of yourself uh, as an attorney when you're working on all of these really tough um, and trying issues. Um, sometimes it would be like a law professor coming and teaching property in a way that actually discussed, um, you know, race and uh, different inequalities and the kind of things that are, I felt when I was in law school, missing from the law school curriculum, like a, a genuine and real acknowledgement of injustice and the way it often is embedded in our laws or uh, is in the way laws are implemented or you know the way judges sentence just I we think it was important to take a really a realistic look at the legal system and in doing so then figure out how to pursue justice with a very clear-eyed notion of what that meant um, actually like in the field and in the world and not just you know in the abstract and in textbooks or reading cases from you know decades ago. Um, so it was an incredible experience. We finished our pilot year. Um, it was at the end of this past academic year and we're gearing up to start our second year, which is very exciting. Um, I came to the Justice Initiative because I was a student of John Hansen when I was in law school. He was my section leader and I took torts with him during my first year of law school. And his class was just so different from anything else I was taking uh, at that time because it, it kind of gave me what I was missing in all of those other classes. It, it helped make me feel connected to a lot of the reasons that I, I came to law school, which is was like a very tough disconnect for me. Because when I came, I, you know, obviously you come to law school with these lofty <laughs> notions of pursuing I justice. I remember that feeling, and, yes. <laughs> and then you quickly are like put in property and contracts and you're like, this is not, how does this, how does this connect to what I wanted to do? But John was very good at integrating kind of that, that passion for justice and equality and a realistic look at what the world around us was and how the law applied to that. 
Um, so I've, I greatly admired him. And when he told me that he and Justin Hansford at Howard University were kind of talking about this idea, I was like, I, sign me up. <laughs> I will do whatever needs to be done to help with it. And that's kind of, kind of where it started. Well, fantastic. So you mentioned that the, I would guess the pilot project was successful if you're contemplating a second year of yes. it. And yes. so I guess what does, so many questions here. So one, how did you determine the success of the first year? So what, what was it about that that made you all think, yes, we should continue on with this, or this is a viable thing that we have? Mm. A lot of the people or all, most of the people in the program asked for us to come back <laughs> and do it again. Uh, so we were like, well, that's a pretty good sign if people want to kind of go through this whole thing again. And they told their classmates or their coworkers or their colleagues or fellow professors about us. And we started kind of getting inundated with requests that I missed the, the first year. Is this something that you're doing again? Um, which was great because it, it kind of confirmed this suspicion that we already had that there's definitely like a hunger for this. There's definitely like a, a desire to talk about these issues and to talk about how legal education can be transformed to be more responsive to what is actually happening in the world. Um, yeah, and so that's kind of what led us to decide to, to do it again was people saying, please, can, can you do this again, especially from law students, particularly from 1Ls who were feeling that same disconnect that I had felt as a 1L who said like this was one of the only spaces where I felt like, okay, this is why I went to law school. Like I, that kind of kept me connected to that, that purpose. So um, we were like, if, if you guys want it, we'll keep doing it, absolutely. Are there particular items that came out of the community discussions? I'm just wondering, is this starting to, <clears throat> excuse me, form projects or, coalitions of people who are trying to do things? Is there anything there that you might want to highlight? Yes. So one of the great treats was having um, Kimberly Crenshaw come and speak to us during one of our sessions. And she spoke, of course, about critical race theory, but about her own evolution um, in being a law student and kind of feeling that feeling of disconnect that I've mentioned and how that led her to do all of the incredible work she's done since then. Um, and of course the students loved it. They you know, loved hearing from her and also kind of put a highlight on critical race theory, which has become this boogeyman for a lot of people and uh, led a lot of the people in the community to want to devote time to that issue and making sure that there was a, the people had a genuine understanding of what critical race theory was. Um, and so that has led to a kind of movement within JI called um, CRT is Me. And mm -hmm. it's just a way for students to talk about how critical race theory has been important to them, has helped kind of uh, illuminate a lot in their legal education and has um, kind of offered a lot of what they, they felt was, was missing. So that's something that's still being developed, um, but it's a very student-led program. So that's been very exciting. And we've also had a lot of students who want to start JI chapters at their own law schools. So that's been really, uh, really great to kind of see there are these little communities, these little JI communities popping up all over the country, which is fantastic. Um, we also had a few international students nice. during the pilot year, which was great to, to know that we have a bit of an international reach. And all of that led to like a very vibrant community, which was one of the best parts, I thought. That sounds wonderful. 
Um, <clears throat> if you had to project out what your hopes would be or your goals would be for this, let's say five years from now, what are you hoping JI looks like? I'm hoping JI looks uh, more established. <laughs> right now, it very much has been, uh, John always uses the, the analogy, we were kind of like building the car while I was on the road, which is very, very true. But I would love to kind of have JI chapters in law schools all around the country and to have it, um, have JI be a genuine force that is engaged with by law schools and legal professionals um, when it comes to discussing legal education or discussing ways to update legal education or discussing ways to make legal education more relevant to whatever crisis is happening at any um, given moment. So I, that would be, that would be my major hope. I, I would also hope that it just opens up the conversation about the ways that I believe traditional legal education often um, either fails students or takes that spark out that you felt when you were one out when you came in being like, yes, this is what I'm doing. I'm here, uh, you know, I'm gonna I, change I, the world. I'm right. gonna change the world. And I think that it's very easy to kind of feel, feel that drained out of you. Um, and I, I wanna make sure that, that students who go to law school maintain that same passion and fire because that's, that's what we need. Is there also perhaps a mentorship element of this? I know my from reading the community looked like it, it included current practitioners and policy mm -hmm. and advocacy people as well. And so how do, how do the non-law students fit into the community? Yes, there is a mentorship program. There's an official mentorship program um, in which we pair students up with practitioners who we have the students fill out like an application or kind of just like a getting to know you survey. So we kind of figure out their interests, what they see themselves doing, any concerns they have going throughout law school. And we match them up with people within the community who can kind of speak to a lot of those interests and concerns. Um, so there is an official mentoring program. There's also kind of been an unofficial mentoring program that's developed, which is great people just clicking and gravitating towards each other. And we get notes all the time that like, hey, I just got accepted to this fellowship that I would never have known about had this practitioner in the group not told me about it. So yeah, that's fantastic. We have uh, an official mentoring program, which is led by Tiffany Smith, one of our ama amazing practitioners who um, just really went out of her way last year to pair everybody who wanted a mentor up. And that's something we'll continue um, going forward. So we're really excited about that. That sounds wonderful. Okay. So I, I warned you about this. So yeah. my favorite part <laughs> of, of these conversations is what I like to call the lightning round. Uh -huh. um, and so these are really meant to be short answers. So you don't have to, you don't have to talk volumes here, okay. but with regard to the issues of justice, mm. what progress do you hope to see in the next year? My gosh, in the next year, I, I honestly kind of hope that we regain some of the ground that we lost under the past uh, administration. Um, and I would hope, I, I just think communication and listening is, is super important. That's something that I see every day working on the Hill. I think that's something that we very much got away from over the past few years. So I would hope that a genuine and good faith effort to actually have these conversations would be what I hope to see. 
I, I agree with you that we seem to have lost the art of disagreeing and still listening. Um, yeah. Because, you know, for, for me, that's part of how I learn. I may not agree with everything that somebody says, but it also makes me think differently about it or right. maybe brings in other voices that I hadn't contemplated right. in my thinking before. So absolutely. Yeah. Um, what gives you hope that progress will be made? Honestly, these students, like the, the younger generation, not even just the students that I interact with every day, but just generally young people just seem to be so much savvier <laughs> than I think a lot of us were when we were that age. I'm constantly um, amazed by the, the level of empathy and understanding a lot of them have. I notice so many things that are just second nature to them that you know, I, I'm not even, you know, I'm 32, but stuff that I still kind of have to think about, like at this point in our JI sessions, students introduce themselves with their pronouns. Like that's just a, that's just a given. That's just a way you introduce yourself. You don't make any assumptions about anybody else. And I, I love that. I just feel like that openness and accepting nature and willingness to, um, uh, just willingness to at least try to understand where other people are coming from is is great. I also think that they're tenacious and <laughs> they do not mess around. And I also really love that. So I'd say that the the students and the younger generation coming up really, really give me hope. Who else is doing good work to make progress? Oh man, um, there are so many groups and so many movements that I think are doing really good work, obviously, Black Lives Matter, I think that they've done fantastic work and really kind of changed a lot of the cultural conversation, which I think is great. Um, another group that we've been wanting to collaborate with has been the um, Movement Lawyering Lab. We unfortunately weren't able to collaborate with them last year, but we're hoping to do so this year. So they're doing fantastic work. Um, Justin Hansford, who is the Howard professor, who's kind of at the helm of this, is the director of the Thurgood Marshall Center for Civil Rights. They're also doing great work and affiliated with Howard, which is a great and historical university with this fantastic history behind it. So those, those are the, the things that pop to mind, the groups that pop to mind at this point. What do you wish people were paying more attention to? Oh, man. <laughs> that, that is a really good question. I, you know, I have always felt that um, injustice is not just something that exists when it's a headline or when it's trending or, you know, when it's like the hot button topic of the moment. I, I very much think this is just human nature. Society goes through cycles where, you know, something is big and flashy and it usually like has a lot of attention for a little while and then it falls from the headlines and then people, I don't know, forget about it or just decide to prioritize other things. I think to pursue justice, it takes a long and sustained effort. And that's hard. I'm not saying that that's easy, but I think it's, I would like people just generally to realize that there's, there's injustice happening, even when it's not trending, even when it's not front of mind, like just be aware, stay motivated, stay engaged, even though take breaks, because I realize that, that it's it can be overwhelming, it can be hard, but 
you know, all, right now the, the hot thing is Afghanistan and I, I am glad people are paying attention to it and I want people to continue paying attention to it even when it's not the first thing on the top of your newsfeed. You know, it's the same when, with, when George Floyd died, that was like all anybody was talking about and everybody was out there protesting, which was great. But I'm like, I would love to see this a year from now, two years from now. I would love to see this sustained effort and passion for this topic, even when it's not what everybody is talking about. So everything, <laughs> pay more attention to the ways um, injustice is happening all the time, even when it's not always in our face. Okay. And then the final thing is we like to leave our audience with suggestions of other places they can go for information. So do you have any recommendations for books or articles or podcasts or thinkers that people should be paying attention to? That's a fantastic question. I, what I have been doing recently is reading and rereading a lot of autobiographies from leaders that I admire just because it's a, it's comforting to realize that history does repeat itself. And in times, especially in the past few years, when I felt hopeless or the sense of despair, it was so great to go back and read um, like biographies about Nelson Mandela or Martin Luther King or people who have, have were in their own struggles and to see how things have changed, but how in a lot of ways things haven't changed and to kind of pattern my, try to be as resilient as a lot of these people as that, that I admire. So I've been just rereading a lot of <laughs> biographies right now. Um, I would also say in terms of thinkers, Cornell West who spoke at our closing JI session and nice. was absolutely amazing and so inspiring and very um, spoke in a way that allowed you to, it allowed you to kind of to be introspective but also really connected us as a community. I, I know that's, that doesn't make a lot of sense, but he was just a, a fantastic speaker, very inspiring. And I think a lot of students said exactly what they needed at that moment. So any interviews or podcasts or any of his books, any of his articles, I would absolutely suggest checking him out. Perfect. Thank you so much. Well, and you, Molly, I really want to thank you for joining us for this quick update on the Justice Initiative. I really appreciate sure. getting your perspective and help having you inform our audience all about that work. Um, Absolutely. Thank you for having me. If there are practitioners in our audience who want to get involved with this, um, we can put the website in the comments during this conversation. But if you would like yes. to talk about where they can get more information. Yes, so we're actually going to have an information session for anybody who's interested in getting involved in JI this next academic year. It'll be on September 18th, which is a Saturday. We haven't determined the time, but it'll likely be between like three and six um, Eastern time, because that's typically when our Saturday sessions were. Um, but that'll be a place where you can come and you can hear from practitioners who have been part of the JI community, from students, um, about their experience, ask any questions that you may have. Um, so I, anyone who's interested, we would love to have you join that information session. Um, yeah. Wonderful. Thank you. Well, and thank you to our audience for joining us for tea as well. In September, we will get back to live discussions. In September, our focus um, under our 2021 programming theme, the work left to do will be on disability rights and disability justice. So join us on Thursday, September 9th at 3 p.m. Eastern 
when I will be having tea with Susan Henderson, who is the executive director, and Sylvia Yi, who is the senior staff attorney of the Disability Rights Education and Defense Fund. Again, that will be at 3 p.m. Eastern on Thursday, September 9th. And Enumali, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you so much. You have been listening to Liberty Under Law, the podcast of the Robert H. Jackson Center, presented in collaboration with Chautauqua Institution. Our program's associate producer is Nicole Gustafson. Bryson Barnes is our producer and composer. I'm Kristen McMahon, president of the Robert H. Jackson Center and your host. Content for this program was drawn from Tea Time with the Jackson Center, a Facebook live event produced by the Jackson Center. The mission of the Robert H. Jackson Center is to advance public awareness and appreciation of the principles of justice and the rule of law as embodied in the achievements and legacy of Robert H. Jackson. U.S. Supreme Court Justice and Chief U.S. Prosecutor at Nuremberg. We envision a world where the universal principles of equality, fairness, and justice prevail. As a nonprofit organization, the Jackson Center's mission is made possible in great part through philanthropic gifts. To learn more about the Jackson Center, our programming, and how you can support our mission, please visit www.roberthjackson.org. You can connect with us and ask questions of future or previous guests through our website. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, remember to subscribe. Thank you.